So as you know, we've been doing this series, Praying with Paul. We've looked at his prayers all the way through, every, through almost every letter, from Romans to Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And we have spent a lot of time actually in First and Second Thessalonians because those two letters are just packed with all kinds of prayers. He wrote these out to let them know what he was praying about for them. But, I'm, but as he's writing, he's also obviously praying as well. And so it's been really fun for me just to spend that time in First and Second Thessalonians in the, inside the, looking at the Thanksgivings and looking at the prayers and so forth. And so that's where we're at now. We're looking at the last one, and this is Second Thessalonians. So let me review the situation for you again. Paul was, has loads and loads of reasons to be concerned for these Christians because, as you remember, he planted this church. Now, remember where it is. So this is modern-day Turkey. Over here was Macedonia. Over in the Greek side was Macedonia, and that's where Philippi was. And down from Philippi was Thessalonica. And so he comes from Philippi down to Thessalonica, and he doesn't last very long. He's there about six weeks to maybe three months planting this church, proclaiming the gospel, seeing people converted. And then the Jews gather a posse of people around and run him out of town at the threat of his life. And so he leaves and goes straight down what's modern-day Greece to Athens. And while he was in Athens, he's trying to preach the gospel, but his mind keeps going back to the church in Thessalonica. He's really worried for them because it's a small church in the midst of, born in the midst of affliction. And so he's deeply concerned about them. So he just can't rest. And so he sends Timothy back from Athens up to Thessalonica to find out how they're doing. Timothy is gone. He's been with them. And now he comes back to Paul in Athens and he gives Paul a really glowing report. And that report causes Paul to just explode in thankfulness. If you remember a few few weeks back, he's thankful for the signs of life, the signs of loyalty, and the signs of longevity. And so he writes these two letters, and in these two letters, his tenderness, the tenderness of Paul, is richly displayed for this church. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8, he describes that he felt like a nursing mother holding them to his heart. And then in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 of 1 Thessalonians, he describes himself as an affectionate father who is concerned about their future. And so... First and Second Thessalonians are two of some of the shortest letters. I know First Thessalonians is five chapters, but it's actually word count. It's fairly short. And then Second Thessalonians is only three chapters. These two very short letters are packed full with Paul's prayers more than any other letter he wrote. Packed more full of prayers than any other letter he wrote. So we've examined Paul's prayers of thanksgiving, the thanksgivings for the signs of life, loyalty, and longevity. And then the last time we met, we looked over his prayers of longing. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 11-13, longing to be together, longing to love together, and longing to stand together. And though there are more prayers of Paul that we can work through, tonight we end the whole series by learning from Paul's prayers in 2 Thessalonians that regard calling, their calling, their comfort, and their concord. Their calling, their comfort, and their concord. So I worked hard at doing C's. I think that was pretty cool. All right? So the calling is in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. It was our first reading. The calling is in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. 
So back up in the beginning of chapter 1, after Paul has given thanks for their longevity, he reminds them of the gospel truth that Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. That's chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. As he talks about Jesus returning, um, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey Him, etc. And then he will come to the prayer. So he, he reminds them of the gospel truth. The day of judgment is part of the gospel. Every gospel sermon just about in the book of Acts always ends with, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. And the proof is that God the Father raised him from the dead, right? So you've got to remember that the day of judgment is actually part of the gospel truth. It's one of those good news, bad news moments, right? It is good news for some. And it's bad news for others. And so this good news, bad news moment in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-10 will evoke, notice it will evoke joy and celebration on that day. Notice how it ends in verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you, uh, because our testimony to you is believed, etc. And so... This good news, bad news moment will evoke joy and celebration on that day. And so then he states the beginning of the prayer, verse 11. Notice the first few words. To this end, we always pray for you. I mean, once more, we've run across this before. Once more, we have a prayer, verse 11 and 12, a prayer about the here and now, that these things would happen to you, right? A prayer about the here and now that is focused on the there and then. Because the Lord is coming again to restore the, to, to judge the living and the dead, it'll be a day of great rejoicing for those who believe. To this end, we have prayed for you. Right? So the there and then has everything to do with his prayers in the here and now. Does that make sense? Because I think it's really important for us to keep in mind. Um, therefore, Paul prays that they will, um, will be fit. Uh, let me go back. So once more, we have a prayer about the here and now that's focused on the there and then. It goes something like this. With a view to that day when Christ returns to set all wrongs to rights... We pray for you these things. And so Paul fits, uh, prays that they will be fit for that moment. And so notice how the prayer goes on. Here's the prayer. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. Now notice, how are they made worthy? It's God's doing. That God may make you worthy of your calling. Never forget that. It's God who does it. It's God's doing. And so it, was ha- it will happen. And so once again, we have another case, another example Um, of prayer where we yearn to see what God has already promised and what God has already begun. A prayer that will be worked out in greater fullness. That the God who will make you fit for that day, that he would do just that. He would make you fit. So think about that. God promises it. God has begun it. And Paul prays it would continue. So it's very fitting for us to do that. Sometimes people get squirrely when it comes to prayer and say, well, why should I pray about that? Because God already promised it's going to happen. That's why you should pray about it, right? You have every confidence to pray for that to happen because God promised it. God has already begun it. And you see Paul doing that very thing here. But as is often the case in prayer, we yearn to see what God has promised and already begun being worked out in greater fullness. And so we have confidence to pray We have confidence to pray 
because we are confident that God is doing and will do it. And so Paul then goes further in his prayer, and he says, and he may fulfill, that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. That God will make you fit for that day and that God will make you uh, will fulfill every one of your every resolve you have for good and every work of faith by his power. Now here's another example. It's already happening. The, the resolve for good is already there and the work of faith. Just go back and look at verse three and four where Paul said back in verse three and four, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are doing, enduring. So it's already happening, but notice that he prays that it would continue and it would get a full head of steam, if you will. Build up momentum and have a full head of steam. So Paul prays for every resolve and every work, every work of faith. Now think of it, my friends. Who doesn't need people praying for them that their resolve will build up steam and move on with more resolve, right? Who doesn't need people praying for them that that would be the case? You could almost translate that last part of that verse or that part of that verse about every resolve and every good work. You could almost translate it as this. Every good desire for every good deed. May God fulfill every one of your good desires for every good deed or something like that. And so my friends, part of our calling are these very aims, this goodness and this active faith. In fact, Paul tells us that. He tells us in another place over in Ephesians 2, a passage we often quote the first two verses, but we don't quote the, the next, the last verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so him praying this way for something that's already happening and praying with this aim in mind is... Biblical, I guess is the best way to put it. Paul's being biblical, wonderful. And notice the end goal of this prayer. It's that last verse, the end goal of this prayer, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The end goal of this prayer harmonizes with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? We'll glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Notice Paul's prayer, the aim of his prayer, actually harmonizes with the the shorter catechism. In fact, just let your eyes run ahead a bit to chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, and you will notice that that's actually the end goal of the gospel, to to enter into the glory of Jesus. Notice how Paul puts it in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. It's about us. 
He's saving us so that we obtain even the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the aim of this prayer in chapter 1. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. That's pretty cool. Most often, we pray that someone would succeed or get well. And the goal often sounds like this. Oh, so they won't have grief or they won't have poverty or some such. And those are fine. Don't get me wrong. But notice that Paul's prayer actually gives us an encouragement to look beyond. And the aim of our prayer to look beyond the temporary results to something more phenomenal. Our Lord's honor being elevated in the ones you're praying for, in us. The Lord's honor being elevated in us and by union with Him, our honor, our glory being elevated with Him. What a way to aim your prayers. Instead of just, oh, fix her bunion and the arthritis, right? That's okay. But so that the glory of Christ may be evidenced in her more, right? And her, and she will enter more deeply into the glory of Jesus. Why not add those things to our prayers? It's exactly what Paul does here. It puts a totally different closure on our calling and even what we're doing in prayer. It puts a different perspective on why we ought to be praying for our spouses, why we ought to be praying for our children, adult and otherwise, and why we ought to be praying for our congregations and our denomination of Christ's church. Oh, that the glory of Christ would be elevated in them and they uh, would be elevated in the glory of Christ. What a great end result. And so it's the calling. That's chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. The next prayer moves into comfort, and it's chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now notice that Paul has a lot in his letters to say about comfort, especially 2 Corinthians. He spends a lot of time talking about comfort in 2 Corinthians. He even begins that letter, talking about the, God of, the, God, uh, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction, that we may be able, be able to comfort those who are, are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have received from Christ, right? He's all about comfort all the way through 2 Corinthians. He has a lot to say about comfort. And since this fledgling congregation in Thessalonica is presently walking through suffering and affliction, look back at chapter 1, verse 4 through 7. Look at the affliction. They're already going through affliction Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in in all your persecutions and in in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for you are also, for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay the affliction of of those who afflict you, etc., They're already going through persecution and affliction. So how fitting that Paul is going to pray for their comfort. It's no surprise that he would. Now notice that just before this prayer, as you go back up to verse 13, which we've already read, he describes his ought always thanksgiving. We ought always to give thanks for you. He describes how it's an ought always to give thanks for the work of God in you and the work of God on you. And then if you look at verse 14, he encourages them to stand firm and hold fast. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 
And so now he prays. With that in his mind, he now prays in verse 16 and 17. Maybe we should remember the value also of adding our prayers, adding prayers to those times when we encourage others. We often we will sometimes pray with someone who's going through affliction. We'll sometimes, in good form, stop them as they tell us about what's going on and say, can I pray with you now? And that's good. But maybe we should also go the other route and when we're encouraging someone, say, you know, you're doing great. This is going well in your life. Praise the Lord for that. Can I pray with you and give thanks for that? And stop at that moment and actually pray with them as we're encouraging. That's what Paul does here. He encourages them and then he adds a prayer to his encouragement. But notice as Paul prays how he begins with a gospel recollection in prayer. Look at how he begins, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. So you know he's getting ready to pray and all of a sudden he stops. Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. And good hope through grace. So he's getting ready to pray. He's actually started the prayer. And then he stops and does a gospel recollection. Here's what you need to remember as I'm praying for you. That our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ have loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. He starts out letting them know that he's praying for them. But that before he turns to the prayer in earnest... He has to ground them in how the Father and the Son are already, already displaying and giving love to them and is already displaying and giving comfort to them and is already displaying and giving hope to them. Good hope. And so that becomes the foundation for what he asks, which is verse 17. May he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The God who has already given them comfort, may he comfort you. Do you hear it again? The very thing God has already done and is already starting to do, he prays that it will continue. The God who's already shown you love and comfort, may he comfort you. And may he uh, establish you in every good word and work. It's interesting, he says, may may, uh, God establish your hearts in every good word and work. And back in verse 15, he had just told them, stand firm, continue to stand firm. And now he prays that the Father and the Son will bring them to do that very thing. To do that very thing while also comforting their hearts. Chapter 2, verse verse 16 and 17 is a rather simple prayer. And yet, how many Christians could use you asking just these things for them? Like some in the hospital or some in a rehab. Or others who are walking through dark seasons or depressive moments. And then think about those who are launching out in new ventures in life. Maybe getting ready to go work on a degree at institutions where they will feel the pressure to conform with lifestyles that, they are, not, that are not always right and healthy. We just dedicated two young ladies this morning who are getting ready to go off to college. If you want to know what to pray for kids in college... How about 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17, right? So that they will stand firm, they will be established in the faith, and and good comfort and good hope. You You want a prayer for your kids and grandkids going to college or going into the military? Here it is. And so he prays about comfort. Finally, Paul moves to Concord, and that's in chapter 3, and it starts at It's in verse 5, and then specifically when you get to verse 16. 
But before we get there, just a couple of things. Both chapter 3, verse 5 and verse 16 are delightful one-liners. I have found myself praying, using them in prayer quite a bit recently. Oh, Lord, that you would direct their hearts into the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Oh, Lord of peace, that you would give them peace at all times and every way. Oh, Lord, be with them. Right? Really delightful one-liners that make it easy to use them in prayer. And I found myself using them quite a bit recently as I'm praying. But notice that to begin, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Paul asks these believers to pray for him because he is actually in a very similar situation that they're in. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have the faith. Paul is in the same situation as they're in, in a different city. And here's the praying Paul asking them to join in and pray for him. Pray for us in the same situation. But he also knows, and here we're back to gospel grounding again in verse 3. He also knows who it is to whom he is praying and who he is pleading with. Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. It's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.9. The Lord is faithful. And what he says is Wes was trying to point out in 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1.9 and then 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 and 13. God is faithful. He knows who he's praying to. He knows who he's pleading to. God is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you against the evil one. So notice that Paul gets right back to gospel grounding which then verse 4 gives him confidence. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And so then he prays, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now notice as he prays that prayer in verse 5, it's not about something that's new, that something new would happen to them because uh, it's already happening to them. He wants it just to build a full head of steam, if you will. He wants it to grow. He wants it to blossom and get bigger. They're already swimming in the love of God. Just look back at verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us. So they're already swimming in the love of God. And so he says, may the Lord direct your hearts back into the love of God. Do you get it? It's already there, so it's not something brand new he's praying for. It's already happening. So he prays for them to circle back around to it all the time. May they always be directed back into the love of God. The same thing with the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your may God direct your hearts may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. The steadfastness of Christ is already promised. It's all of chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. That the Lord Jesus knows them. He knows they're being afflicted. And he's going to come and he is going to turn all wrongs to right. And he's not going to waffle and he's not going to fudge. He's steadfast even when it comes to the day of judgment. And so the Lord knows them. And he's not waffling on goodness, justice, and rightness. And he will always be which is where they always need to be circling back to, that your hearts be directed into the steadfastness of Christ. That they would, um, 
But this, and this steadfastness, back into the steadfastness of Christ, will then produce steadfastness in them. A steadfastness that will support them in their daily work and sufficiency. As you read through the rest of chapter 3, there's a problem. The problem is that there were some Christians in the church who quit working and were spending all their time putting their noses into everybody else's business. Okay, we call them busybodies, right? And it was causing trouble because now you have a bunch of loose cannons running around the church getting into everybody's business and wanting you to support them and take care of them while they get into everybody's business. And Paul tells the Christians at Thessalonica, tell them to stop. Because what you should be doing is verse 12. Look at verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It's the same thing Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 and 10. We should be known as a people who work industriously, who work quietly, and who earn our own living and are not really known by a lot of people outside of our context. We're not drawing undue attention to ourselves. And that's what Paul is telling them. He's praying that they'll be, they'll be directed into the steadfastness of Christ, and that steadfastness of Christ would support them in their own daily work and self-sufficiency, and it would support them in being steadfast and helping to encourage other believers to be just as resourceful to get back to work, to get back to being busy in the things they're supposed to be and get their nose out of everybody else's business. Again, that's verses 6 through verse 11. And then if they don't do that, then comes verses 13 through 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And the purpose for all of this is concord, peace. The purpose of it is concord, it's peace, which is Paul's final prayer, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. In every way, the Lord be with you all. And what is the source then of this communal, congregational peace that Paul is praying for? It's the Lord of peace. And let me say this, and this can get a little touchy, but let's just go for it. A church that splinters and shatters because of idle, troublesome people is not good for anyone. The idle and the troublesome need to be dealt with graciously, as is being stated in verses 13 through 15. They're not to be ignored and allowed to continue to be idle and troublesome. And so as a congregation bands together to encourage biblical resourcefulness and biblical peacefulness, then the idle and the troublesome will either pull themselves together and get with the program, verse verse 12, or they will leave. But leaving is not what Paul wants them to do, nor should we. He wants them to stop being busybodies and get busy with what they're supposed to do. Why is this important? My friends, has anybody heard of social media? Okay, there's a lot of people that you watch on social media and you wonder, do they have a day job? I've called fellow ministers down in our denomination before and ruling elders down and said to them more than once because they fight every war they can on social media. I said, brother, God called you to be a pastor of your church. Are you pastoring your church? 
How's your wife and kids doing? You spend so much stinking time on social media. You're a busybody. And this passage says, stop. And no wonder there's conflicts even in our denomination because there's a lot of busybodies who are idle, not doing what they're called to do. And so when Paul prays this prayer in verse 16, it comes about because people quit being busybodies and get busy with what they're supposed to do, which is verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It's very simple. It's a little touchy, but it's very simple. And so, we should want a harmonious fellowship of industrious believers. Now, I'm talking about people who can work. Not everybody can work. You understand that, right? Not everybody has the physical ability any longer to work. Maybe there's a stroke that's been involved. Whatever. There's just reasons why some people can't work. I'm not talking about them. I'm just talking about the average person in a congregation. We should want a harmonious fellowship of industrious believers who are working quietly and earning their own living. A harmonious fellowship that does not arouse the attention of the larger community. A harmonious fellowship that does not make that does not uh, that um, a harmonious fellowship that is not known as a troublemaking, rebellious, slothful church. That's verse 11, if you go back in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. That harmonious fellowship is a result of this prayer. And so, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. It's a very substantial prayer, Paul prays in chapter 3, verse 16. And so, my friends, as we learn to pray with Paul, these short invocations at the end of chapter 2, the end of of chapter 1, end of chapter 2, end of chapter 3, are a huge help. There are different aspects of discipleship that require us to pray in different ways. Though these believers are being afflicted and disturbed by outside forces and by a few inside rabble-rousers, Paul shows how to pray for people in these situations. Pray for them to flourish and become bountiful in their calling, chapter 1, 11, and 12. Praying for them to experience even greater comfort, especially while they they work and speak, chapter 2, 16, and 17. And praying for them to be drawn deeper into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ, especially while they deal with bothersome people in their own midst, and that the God of peace will bring Peace will bring the peace of God to prevail. And so, there's 2 Thessalonians, the prayers that are there. It's really amazing, and they're really delightful prayers. But one last time, let me encourage you to take these prayers of Paul that we've worked through and think, how can you incorporate them into your daily prayers? I gave you an example the other day of a journal that I have where I've actually taken every one of these prayers and I number the page, one. So this is day one, Romans 15, etc. And then day two is another set of those Pauline prayers, we want to call them that. And then day three is the next one. And the day four is the next one. I end up with eight days. And I'm able to cycle through those. It's, a, it's really a wonderful resource. But that's just an example. I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'm giving you an example. And so I hope that through this series you become more encouraged to pray. And I hope that you walk out with... Uh, biblical resources, even Paul specifically, 
as you think about how do you pray for others. So let's pray. Well, Lord God, thank you that you have loved us and you have given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. You're the God who has already begun a good work in us and you are the one who will complete it until the day of Christ. And so we pray for, we pray for one another. We pray for one another here now and one another in our congregation who are not here right now. That you would be with each and every one of us. That you would continue your good work in us. That you would make us worthy of, our call, of your calling that you would fulfill in us every resolve for good and every work of faith by your power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in us and we in him. And we pray, Lord, that you would direct our hearts, you would direct our spouses' hearts, you would direct our children's hearts into the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And so finally, Lord, of peace, we pray that you would give us peace at all times and in every way. Lord Jesus, be with us all. Amen.